Okay. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's go ahead and open up on a word of prayer this morning, and we can get into our study in Romans. Dearest Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and give you praise uh, for this day, for this opportunity to come together as your church. We thank you for uh, our time here together. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we as we study your word, as we worship you, Lord, as we encourage and serve one another, Lord, and we just pray that this would be a time that would bring glory and honor to you. Lord, we thank you for this day that uh, we can celebrate uh, Father's Day. We thank you for the uh, fathers that you've brought into our lives. We thank you, Lord, for um, uh, the men in this body, Lord, and just pray that you would help us to be uh, men that are glorifying and honoring to you, Lord, pray that we would be leaders in our homes, leaders in the church, and Lord, that we would just serve you each and every day. Lord, we thank you um, again for uh, this church. We thank you for this body of believers. Just pray, Lord, that we would be uh, just instrumental in each other's lives, in, in encouraging one another, Lord, edifying each other, Lord, and, and serving one another with our gifts. Lord, we just pray again now that you'd be with us as we look into Romans. We thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and the way that you used him mightily in the church in the early days. And Lord, we just thank you for the truth of your word that you brought about through men like Paul. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First chapter of Romans again this morning. If you'll turn there with me. As we mentioned... In our introduction last week, the book of Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to these believers in the city of Rome that is at its heart a detailed message of the gospel. Paul here provides detailed information on the gospel that we don't really find any other place in scripture, at least not to the depth that we find here. It really completes our understanding of what the gospel is all about. This letter was written in 58 AD, at least 20 to 25 years after the ascension of Christ to heaven. And if we are to correctly understand that some of the elements here in this letter would have been new revelation to the church, that means that some of the information that Paul is revealing here wasn't made available to these believers in Rome for over 20 years. One of the most likely theories about the start of this church, again, we don't really know for sure how it started, but one of the likely theories about this church was that it was believers who had been saved uh, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost and had traveled back home to the city of Rome to start the church. Now, I mentioned last time when we talked about that, that that theory had some issues since they would have been Jews coming back to Rome, and Paul makes it clear that this is very much a Gentile church. But you have to think, over the span of 20 years, it could very well have become more and more Gentile-oriented and less and less Jewish-oriented, which could explain the reasoning why Paul feels the need to explain to these Gentile believers in chapters 9 through 11 that the promises to Israel have not been canceled, even though the plan for the Jews might have become less and less obvious over time. But if this is indeed how the church started without Paul's intervention and without really any apostolic involvement for so long a time, then it's really quite remarkable that this church had been doing so well and been so faithful on their own for such a long period of time. And we'll see that um, in some of the remarks that Paul makes to them in our passage this morning. So what we have here in the letter is Paul giving this church more information on 
the gospel. And we saw last time in the introductory, the salutation, that Paul was writing to a church. He was writing to believers. This was not a letter written to bring them to salvation, but a letter written to people whom Paul was convinced were already saved. We saw in verse 6 that he referred to them as the called of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, which verse 7 was really his first direct acknowledgement of them as the audience of his letter, he called them beloved of God and called saints. All of those references were to their salvation, to a people who already belonged to God through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had introduced himself in the first verse as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a called apostle, one who was set apart for the gospel of God, which, as we stated, was Paul's role as one whom God had called into service for himself, service to carry the gospel to the Gentile world. In verses 2 through 6, we had Paul present a mini-introduction to the letter as he expounded upon the gospel. The gospel that is God's good news, promised in the Old Testament scriptures that was all about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is all part of what Paul uh, said to them by way of introduction in just those first seven verses of the letter. Now, as we come to verse 8 of chapter 1, we're going to continue to see Paul greet this church. As was common after giving the salutation, the, the from to portion of the letter, the writer would then include some sort of personal greeting. And that's what we really have from verses 8 through 15 before he then segues to the heart of what he wants to tell them, starting in verse 16. So we're going to spend our time this morning looking into this personal greeting to the Romans, and we're going to get to see some of the reasoning that Paul gives for why he's writing to them and what he hopes to accomplish with them and for them in the future. And these verses are really instrumental in establishing Paul's reasoning, his authority, as he reaches out to this body of believers. In verses 8 through 10, he'll tell them that he prays for them, and that he's been praying for them regularly. In verses 11 through 13, he'll tell them that he has a desire to serve them and to come visit them and provide some sort of benefit to their ministry. And in verses 14 through 15, he's going to tell them that not only is that his desire, not only does he want to do that, but he's under obligation to do that. So look with me at what he says. We'll start in verse 8 here. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So he starts off here with the word first. But you notice as we go through here that there is no second. This isn't really a numbered list that he's presenting here. This is simply where he wants to start. And the first thing that he wants them to know before he tells them anything else is that he thanks God for them. He prays for them. Now, it's one thing when someone tells you that, you are, that they're praying for you, right? Someone that you know, right? So we ask for prayer in our D groups, maybe, with, with friends, with people that we hang out with. It's one thing that we know that friends are praying for us, and that's encouraging to us. But here is the Apostle Paul, right? No doubt they had heard of Paul. They didn't know him personally. His ministry would have been well known to them, um, but he didn't know them personally. He had never been to Rome, although he will acknowledge at the end of the letter that there are some people, there's quite a few people in this church that he does know personally. 
But here is this guy, kind of a big deal in the church, and he's giving thanks for them. He's praying for this church that he's never been to. And that's kind of an encouraging thing. Hearing that someone whom you don't even know is giving thanks to God for you. And that's what Paul tells them here. He says that he's praying to my God. And we note that because we need to keep in mind that praying to God is something personal. It's a personal thing, right? We could say that I thank God or even I thank our God, but that's not what Paul says here. He says, I thank my God. And we see that personal relationship that he has with God, and we understand that personal relationship, right? Today's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers that are here. But when we think about our fathers, right? I have a brother, right? But okay, when we think about our fathers, I don't think about my brother. But I do in this case. I have a brother, right? There's two of us. And yet when I refer to my dad, right? He's really our dad. But when I refer to my dad, I refer to him as my dad, right? That's how I refer to him. I don't really usually say our dad or the dad, um, or my brother's dad, he's my dad. My brother would also say my dad, right? We get that, because there's that personal relationship that we have with someone. So with God, for those who belong to him, right, there's that personal thing. We have a personal relationship with him. That's that same way, and that's what Paul's really exhibiting here. He's my God, and that's an important thing for me to keep in mind, because there is an intimacy between us as believers and God. Paul will later tell us in the book, when we get to chapter 8, that through the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the believer is able to cry out to God, Abba, Father, in that same type of intimate and personal way. And that is quite frankly a blessing that the unbeliever does not have, because they have not been adopted into the household of God. They have not come through Jesus Christ. And part of what Paul says next here is an indication of that, where he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. And the very reason that we are able to thank God, the very reason that we are able to pray to God at all, is because of Jesus Christ, because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ that we have access to the Father. That is the only way that a person has access to the Father. What did Jesus tell his disciples in John 14? First, that we probably all know by heart. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus Christ is the only access to God the Father. The only access. One who tries to come to God any other way, can't do that. That includes even in prayer. People in the world want their cake and they want to eat it too, right? I don't exactly know what that phrase means, but it doesn't really make sense to me. But anyway, you get the idea of what I'm saying. They reject God. They reject his gospel. They reject his son. They want to live their life their own way. They don't want to have anything to do with God in normal day-to-day -day events. But then something goes wrong in their life. And what do they do? They get down on their knees. And they say something like, Oh God, I, I don't normally do this, but if you exist, please help me. 
Or they might say, I'll try to be better, I'll try to be nicer to people if you help me just this one time. Well, I'm sorry, but it doesn't work that way. Access to God, prayer included, is only a saving, is only through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That is part of his high priestly ministry that made that possible. Paul here is saying that even in his thanks to God for them, he understands that that is made possible through Jesus Christ. And again, this is the power of the gospel, and we talked about that a bit last time, as Jesus was appointed to that saving power at his resurrection, and that power comes through the gospel. And we'll talk about that when we get to verse 16. Okay, so Paul thanks God for them, for all of them. Not just a few, not just the few of them there that he knew, but as this entire Roman church, he says, that he's, thank, he's praying and thanking God for them all. And he says in the last part of the verse, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now that's a remarkable statement here. The faith of this church is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Rome was the capital of the world at this time. We know that from our Daniel study, right? When we were studying through Daniel, the, the, the great... Um, the, uh, the great world powers that we talked about, right? At this point in time, Rome was still in charge of the world. Paul here says that their faithfulness has been named, known throughout the whole world, right? This church was in the center of the capital of the world. And if you stop to think about that, this, this is a church that wasn't planted by Paul, And again, we don't really know for sure who did plant it. This church hadn't been fully informed about all of the details of the gospel message yet. And we don't know what type of teaching or leadership this church has, right? We don't really know who are the elders, who are the pastors of this church at Rome. We have no idea. And yet, they were living in such a way that their faith was known all over the place, everywhere. They were known for that. Right? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that every person in the world had this church's name on their lips, but other churches, other believers living in other parts of the world were hearing about these faithful believers in Rome, standing firm in their faith, living for the Lord. And that's quite a commendation. It's no wonder that they had Paul's attention, that Paul had a desire to reach out to this church, to minister to them, and to pray for them, which he did on a constant basis. Look what he says here in verse 9. He says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. What's Paul doing? Paul's praying for them a lot, right? You get the idea here that that he prays for this church a lot. We already saw that he's thankful for them, right, in verse 8. Here we see the frequency, unceasingly, always in my prayers. This doesn't mean that he never does anything other than pray for them. I I get the feeling that Paul spent a lot of time in prayer. But it means that they are frequently on his mind. Whenever he prays, he remembers to pray for the Romans. This is a church that he remembers to pray for. He's faithful in remembering to pray for them. And this is unusual for Paul. He says this a lot in his letters. In a lot of his letters, he says this to these churches. 
to the church at Philippi. He says in Philippians 1.4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Church at Ephesus, he says, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Church at Colossae, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. To the Corinthian church, he said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. To the church at Thessalonica, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul's prayer life was filled constantly with prayers for other people. Most of these churches, most of these churches here that I, that I read from were churches that he was instrumental in forming, that uh, sharing the gospel, ministering to, planting these churches. But here with the Roman church, again, this was not even a church he was that close to, and yet he still made it a point to pray for them constantly. And when I read about Paul's prayer life and I read about things like that, you know the question I'm going to ask, right? How are we doing with our prayer life? How are we with praying for just those here in our own church? Not even other churches and people in other places, but how are we with praying for people in our own church? Praying for a family a week. Praying for those in our D groups. Lifting up our pastor and our elders in prayer each and every week. I'll bet that our list is a lot shorter than Paul's was. How are we doing with constant, unceasing, always type of prayers? If you're like me, there's probably some room for improvement when it comes to the way in which we pray. And Paul sets a good example here for us to follow with his prayer life. So Paul prays constantly for the Romans. But he adds in some clarification as well. And I think this is important to see. Notably, that he calls God as his witness to this. He wants them to know that he's serious about this. This isn't just filler or feel-good platitudes. right? I mean, you could sit there and write a letter to somebody and you could say, Oh, I'm always praying for you. And maybe we talk to people and say, Oh, yeah, you're always in my prayers. But are they really? Is that always true? This is Paul making it a point to say, you know what, this isn't just a platitude. I, I'm calling God as my witness that I am always constantly praying for you. And that's really one of the reasons why going through this section here isn't just a formality. When it comes to the greetings and the introductions of letters, as well as the closing remarks of letters, what do we tend to do sometimes? Sometimes I think we kind of tune those out, right? Well, here's the greeting. I'll skip over those. I'll get to the meat of the letter. And then I get to the end, and it's like, yeah, the last few verses. Yeah, we can probably stop now. But this is all included in Scripture, right? Paul here makes an oath by God that what he's saying, even in this, is absolutely true. And he gives us some insight into who God is and what that relationship he has with him means to him here. He calls him God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. And this statement here, this is a very heartfelt statement from Paul. The word for serve that he uses here is a word that doesn't just mean doing something. But it's often used in reference to worship, or if it's, it's used in reference along with worship. It's a reverent form 
of service. And I want, to, I want you to look at a couple verses with me. Turn over to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. And we'll see how this word is used in a couple of other places. In Philippians chapter 3, um, in verse 2, Paul talks about the false circumcision. And then in verse 3 of Philippians 3, he says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That word for worship there, that's our word serve in Romans chapter 1. And he'll go on here and he'll compare this statement of this true worship or this um, worshiping or serving in the spirit of God with what he previously thought that he was doing in service to God prior to salvation. Serving in various ways within Judaism, which really turned out to be just deeds of the flesh. And now turn over with me to, this one should be easy to find, Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter in the Bible where we see a fitting use of this term, and we see how this plays in, um, even with the way that Paul refers to himself in Romans. Revelation 22, look at verse 3. We're talking here about the eternal state, where it says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Paul referred to himself as a bondservant in verse 1 of Romans chapter 1. Christians are his bondservants. In the eternal state, when we are all in glory with him, we will serve him there. That's the same word that we're talking about here. So this is a heartfelt, reverent service that Paul is talking about here when he says, whom I serve in my spirit. Turn back to Romans 1. This is service from the heart. This is service from within. That would be as opposed to just going through motions. Performing service just for outward appearance, for just how it makes us look, or because we just feel obligated to do it. Now, Paul will talk in just a few verses about being under obligation. And there is an obligation um, to preach the gospel that he's talking about there. But here, he's already stating that the way in which he serves for the gospel is because it's his heartfelt desire to do this. Paul's service, as we mentioned last time, it's why he's writing this letter, is to preach the gospel. His mission is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, there is no gospel without Jesus Christ. There is no good news without the finished work that he accomplished on the cross for our sins. That is the gospel that Paul preaches from his spirit, from within. He will talk to the Colossians about this in Colossians chapter 3. I'll just Read this one for time. In Colossians 3, verse 17, he says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And we saw last time in our study that we were bought with a price. We no longer belong to us. We belong to the Lord. But it's so much more than just going through the motions of service because we have to. It's doing what we do for the Lord in the name of the Son, thankfully to the Father. Again, just like we saw in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, giving thanks to the Father through the Son. It's because as Christians, we want to serve our Lord. So then down in verse 23 of Colossians 3, he says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord rather than for men. What we do, whatever we do, we are to do it heartily. 
And that's the same internal desire that we are to have. We are serving the one true living God. We are serving the Lord of all creation. We give him praise. To him alone belongs all the glory. And that is the perspective that Paul had, the perspective that we should have as his children, as his bondservants. Back in Romans 1, that's right, you stayed in Romans 1. I went to Colossians 3. But back in Romans 1, we see at the end of verse 10, as Paul is praying for them, that one of the things for which he's praying concerning them is that he might visit them. He says, by the will of God, he says, I may succeed in coming to you. And this is what's going to take us into the next set of verses. He has the desire to visit this church at Rome, to come and to minister to them in person. Now, why hasn't he visited them already? What's kept him from coming? Well, he gives us some insight to this later on in the letter. And we're going to look at that now. Turn back to Romans chapter 15. He's going to tell them this at the end of the letter. But we're not going to wait that long. We, we don't have to wait that long. We can, we can go to it now. But if you turn back to Romans 15, in verse 16 of Romans 15, he talks about being the apostle to the Gentiles, and we mentioned that last time. He continues on with his ministry to the Gentiles down into verse 19, talking about bringing that obedience of faith to the Gentiles, preaching the gospel in various places. But he says at the end of verse 19, he says, So that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that, I might, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. So Paul's ministry in spreading the gospel was for what purpose? It was to see people getting saved, right? He was going to the lost to take the gospel to places that had not heard it before, to the unsaved. His duty was to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, not just visiting places where the gospel had already been preached, not just visiting churches filled with believers to visit churches, and not to preach in places where other men had planted churches, building on their foundation. And so he says then in verse 22, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you. He has wanted to come to Rome for many years, often over the course of many years, he says. But what was the issue? The church at Rome was already saved, right? They were already an established church. He had to keep spreading the gospel, taking it to the lost, but now, at this point in time, as he writes this, he's running out of places in Asia Minor. So he's thinking, now might be the time to take that trip to Rome, finally. And he goes on, verse 24, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. So he has a plan to go to Spain to preach the gospel to the lost there. But coming through, he thinks this would be a good time to finally make it to Rome after he takes the offerings he's collecting to the saints in Jerusalem. So he's in Corinth as he's writing this. He has an offering to take back to the saints in Jerusalem. And then his plan is to go to Spain and stop in Rome to finally visit the church there in Rome. He says down in verse 32 of Romans 15 that his desire is to find some refreshing rest while he's there. Paul sees the Roman church as a true church, not as a place 
that has problems to fix, not as a place uh, that isn't strong in their faith, but as a place that is strong in faith and would be a place to rest on his way to further his ministry. So that's his plan. So back in chapter 1, he says at the end of the verse 10, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Paul recognizes here that his, that his plans are dependent upon what? Upon the will of God, right? And it's good that Paul recognizes that. Because his plans aren't going to work out quite like he hoped they would. We know what his plan was. We also know that his plan did not get accomplished that way. Oh, it was the Lord's will that he go to Rome. He was correct in that. But it didn't quite happen like he wanted to. He did make it back to Jerusalem, but once there, he's arrested, and he's sent to Rome in chains as a prisoner. Gets shipwrecked on the way. That probably wasn't part of his plan. He might have wanted his time in Rome to be of rest and relaxation, and who knows? It might have been very restful. He was under house arrest. He might have gotten a lot of rest while he was there. So when he finally gets to meet the church at Rome, it would have been them, uh, would have been them coming to see him rather than him getting to visit them as he wanted. And that was God's will. And you get to Rome, Paul, but you'll go in a different way than you think that you will. And, you know, Paul recognized that his plans were subject to God's will. We don't know all that God has planned for us day in and day out. We make plans, but we understand that it's all subject to God's will, right? What does James say in chapter 4 of James He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. We make plans. We might make really good plans. But in the end, the Lord might have different plans for us. And we need to be ready to accept those plans and adjust for those plans and live our lives according to his will, open for what he might have in store for us. It's really done with a submissive attitude, an attitude of being open to what God's will is, and that's how we ought to live as believers. As Paul is showing us here, that's the attitude that he had. So Paul has a desire to come to them, and as as a part of what he wants to do when he sees them, uh, we have verses 11 through 13 where we see what his plans are, the service that he longs to provide for them. He says in verse 11, For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. And this is a ministry he wants to have with them. You know, We mentioned in chapter 15, he'll talk about refreshing rest when he's with them. I think it's interesting to note that in Paul's mind, refreshing rest involves a different type of service. Paul's desire to come to Rome... Um, he desires to come to Rome so that he might serve them in some way, provide them with some type of gift. He doesn't come and say, I'm just going to come and leech off you for a few weeks. He wants to serve them when he's there. Now he says, I may impart some spiritual gift to you. Now there's some debate over what he means by this because it's really, he doesn't really clarify what this spiritual gift is. Um, it could be that he's talking about some type of apostolic authority that he has to actually bestow spiritual gifts within the church. Maybe in the early church, during the time of transition from the start of the church to the church being fully established, this may have been part of the apostolic ministry, imparting gifts so that they could function independently prior to the completion of Scripture. 
Normally, that's not how gifts work. Today, they most definitely do not work that way. We receive our gifts from the Spirit, I would say, at the time that we're saved. But in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he reminds Timothy to kindle afresh the gift that was given to him through the laying on of his, Paul's, hands. He says, possibly indicating a similar situation there. So it could be that. Or it could just be that Paul is making reference to some spiritual benefit uh, that he could provide them through his ministry. And particularly, um, what he will bring to them is a clearer picture of the gospel. Information that they might not yet have or that they don't yet have all the details of. Paul was an apostle, and as an apostle, he, has, he was given direct revelation from God. As Paul writes this letter to the Romans, direct revelation has not yet ceased. Apostles and prophets were still active in the church at that time. They're not active today, but they were at that time. So Paul may be telling them that as an apostle, he would be coming to minister to them and bring them further revelation from God that you may be established, a word that means to be strengthened, that they would become even stronger in their walk with the Lord. They were already known for their faith, but that doesn't mean that they didn't have room for more growth for more encouragement, for more exhortation, for more teaching. It's when believers get to the point in their life when they think, you know what, I know all that I need to know. I have served all that I need to serve. I don't need anyone to affirm what I'm doing, tell me that I need to do something new, try to teach me something from this book or that. I've studied through them all. Oh, I know those books backwards and forwards. I don't need to attend another study on that book. If a believer gets to that point, then they are just proving that they have a lot more to study than they thought that they did. A lot more to work on. As the Christian walk is all about growth. It's all about maturing. Ongoing, continual basis. Even Paul himself, as he wrote to the Philippians, told them that he had not already obtained perfection. He had not already laid hold of that for which he was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. But he pressed on, and that pressing on that he's talking about there is pressing on in sanctification. That maturing process that we go through, because as believers here in this life, we will never get to a point where we know it all. Having accomplished all that needs to be done, it won't happen. Paul wants to come to this church that he's just commended for their faith and impart a gift to them that will strengthen them even further. And in the next verse, he says that it will be a mutual benefit. He will get something out of it as well. He says, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Some commentators say here that it's almost as if Paul backtracks by saying this. Where in verse 11, he says, I will strengthen you. Then he takes it back to say, but really, we're going to strengthen each other. Well, I don't believe that Paul means to change anything that he had previously said, but he's making it clear that there is mutual benefit in service to them. Yes, as an apostle, he had gifts to share with them. God had provided him with that apostolic power and authority to build and strengthen churches wherever he went. But at the same time, there is always mutual encouragement to be had whenever believers are ministering and serving with one another. The word for encourage is from the Greek word paraclete. You may recognize that word. That's the same word that Jesus used to refer to the Holy Spirit in John 14, 26. 
when he was telling the disciples that the comforter, the paraclete, would come to them and teach them all things. It's that same type of comfort and encouragement that he's talking about here. Turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul writes to the Thessalonians at the end of chapter 2 that he's desiring to come and see them, much like he desired to visit the Romans. But before he could come himself, he had to send Timothy to visit them. And look at verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. And so he sends Timothy here to strengthen and encourage them. And that's our same word there, encourage. That's paraclete. But then what I want you to see here, as Paul Paul continues on, he says in verse 6 that Timothy returned from that visit, bringing good news from that trip. But look at what he says in verse 7. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. And that word comforted there, that's our same word that we're talking about. Strengthened, encouraged. Paul sends Timothy to encourage the believers at this church. And Paul and his body, uh, party, sorry, end up being encouraged, comforted themselves by them as well as he hears about their faith. You see, that's how this whole church thing works. When we are invested in each other's lives, when we minister together, when we serve one another together. Paul knew from having visited many churches that he got as much as he gave. Not that that was his end goal, that he wanted to get something from them, but that's how ministry works. That's how the church is supposed to function. When we meet together, we ought to seek to encourage one another, pray for one another, lift one another up. As we exercise our spiritual gifts to serve in the church, that's the type of encouragement and strengthening that we will receive together. So Paul's desire is to minister to them, to serve with them, and in doing so, he knows that it will be a mutual encouragement to him as well. He continues on in verse 13, Romans chapter 1, if you're back in Romans. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. We talked about this some already when we turned over to chapter 15, saw that it had been many years that he'd wanted to come to them, but hadn't yet been able to do so. He says here, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren indicating that this was something that he specifically wanted them to understand, wants them to fully realize what his intentions are, what his plans are. It's possible uh, that others might have been planning a bug in the era of the Romans, saying that Paul wasn't really interested in coming to them, or that he wasn't being honest about wanting to come and see them. Right? Uh, there are other times in Paul's letters where he must defend himself from what people are saying about him. And he has to come out and say, this is not really what's going on. This is, this is what my intentions are, right? Sort of fixing something that he taught. It's possible that he's doing the same thing here. Or maybe the people that he knew in Rome, maybe he'd been in communication with them over the years, saying, oh yeah, I'm planning to come visit Rome. I'm planning to come visit Rome. I want to come and visit you here in Rome. And maybe they'd been telling other people in the church, but over the course of a few years, Paul wants to come, but he never comes. 
well, maybe that's not really plan, Paul's plan at all. Maybe we're not really important enough to Paul to, to come. So he's assuring them that, that this is indeed his plan, that he has a longing to see them face to face. Now, he mentions in this verse obtaining some fruit from among them. The idea of fruit can be used in a couple of different ways in the New Testament. In the book of Galatians, Paul's, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, characteristics that will define the believer, anyone who is filled with the Holy Spirit, will manifest these fruits of the Spirit. They will be produced in a believer's life. But here, Paul is using fruit really in a more general sense, simply talking about having a fruitful harvest, getting some type of growth or results out of his service among them. And Paul uses this word in the same way in Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, he's talking about... um, Actually, turn over, turn over to Philippians chapter 1. I want to read you something in Romans 6 while you're going over to Philippians chapter 1. He'll use that in Philippians 1. In Romans 6, Paul says down in verse 22 of Romans 6, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. The word for benefit in that verse is the idea of a result or fruit. It's the same word. That's the same word we see there in verse 13 of chapter 1, a result of something. And there the idea is that having been justified, the result or fruit is then having a sanctified life and then also eternal life. Now, in Philippians chapter 1, we see a more complete comparison to what Paul is talking about in Romans 1. In Philippians, Paul is in prison as he's writing this letter, And he's actually pondering, he's having this internal discussion with himself about whether it would be better for him to be executed and go to the Lord, or whether it would be better for him to stay and and, and minister. He says in verse 21 of Philippians 1, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is service for the Lord, to die would be to go to the presence of the Lord. But look at what he says in verse 22. He says, But If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. So here's his point. Living on means this continued service, and continued service is characterized in Paul's mind by fruitful labor. That's our word. This is labor, not just for labor's sake, but labor that has a result, labor that has a benefit. And see, that's how we ought to see our service. Not just as work, not just as something that we have to do, but we need to realize that the service that we do for the Lord can be used in mighty ways by Him. We may not always see it, we may not always realize it right away, but there is fruit that we can and should expect from our labor. So here in Romans 1, Paul is expecting just that, being able to come and fruitfully work among them, providing them with service, ministering to them teaching them the word, bringing them greater understanding of the truth of the gospel message. And he relates it to his primary ministry as well at the end of verse 13, where he says, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. As the apostle to the Gentiles, that was his goal, seeing the same type of fruit among um, his primary target audience, his mission field would, be the, would have been the Gentiles. So fruit is a general word here. Among the believers in Rome, the fruit would be their encouragement, their exhortation, their strength, increased fruitfulness. But also, Rome had a very large unsaved pagan population, and this church was right in the middle of that group. 
So by giving this church a further explanation of the gospel, more details on God's work in salvation, that could mean fruitful labor in evangelism for them as well. Either directly through Paul's ministry or by his teaching to this Roman church to be able to go out and spread the gospel on their own. And we know, having already uh, stated, Paul isn't going to be able to get out much in Rome when he's there. Paul's not going to be able to hit the streets in Rome and, and evangelize people. Or um, He's going to be sitting in chains. He's not going to be able to go to synagogues or temples or really any other places where large groups might be gathered to hear the word. That work is going to have to end up being done by those to whom he has encouraged and taught to do it. So there's going to definitely be a passing of the torch when it comes to evangelizing the Gentiles in Rome. And we could say, really, we could say that we're a part of that passing of the torch as well, because what do we do? We study God's word. We know the gospel through the ministry of men like Paul and Peter and others, men that have written the word down, that God is inspired to give us the word. And we take it and we study it and we teach it and we go out and evangelize based on the word given to us through those men. So that's what we do. That torch has been passed. Okay, so he wants to visit them as part of his ministry to Gentiles. Now in verses 14 and 15, he's going to expound on that service to them and talk about how it's more than just a desire. It is a desire. It is something that he wants to do, but it's really more than a desire. It's an obligation that he has. And he starts off in verse 14 by saying, I am under obligation. And the word means to be a debtor, to owe something to someone. So he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And this is an interesting perspective that Paul has here, one that quite frankly many today might not have. You know, people today might say, oh, well, I want to come serve you. I want to minister with you. I want to make sure that I provide some benefit to you in some way. People might say that. People, that might be their attitude. That might be what they tell people in a letter or an email or a text that they're going to come talk to them. But then on the inside, what's their real motivation? I mean, Paul's motivation could have been something like, I'm Paul. I'm that famous guy you've heard about. I'm that guy out there putting my neck on the line for the church every day. I deserve a little respect. I deserve a little recognition. Every place I visit, I increase my visibility and my fan base. But that's not Paul's viewpoint at all. He goes completely in the other direction. He says, I come to you because I'm indebted to you. I have no choice. This is what I am supposed to do. Again, this is what I was called to do. The Lord saved him for this very purpose. He mentions some different groups of people here. But really, he's using them as general examples to get his point across. And he's talking about general groups within the Gentiles, to which he's just referenced in the last verse. Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. The Greeks in this day and time were seen as the cultured ones. We might think of them as high society. Um, the important people, the elite, whatever you want to call them. Barbarians, on the other hand, were not cultured. The word for barbarians was a word that came from a derogatory reference to people who weren't very cultured. They would deride them for speaking nonsense. Oh, they just speak. They'd say, they'd say, bar, 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 bar. Unintelligibly, since this be and this became the word barbarian. That's how they came about with that word. So these would be, I don't know, we might call them lowlifes, right? So Paul is simply referencing what 
would commonly be seen as the opposite ends of the spectrum in society. We might use the phrase today, if, we were to, if Paul was writing this today, we might say from Ivy League to redneck. And whether or not you agree with that comparison, you get the idea of what, of what it's saying. In the same vein, he talks about the wise and the foolish. And we understand that educated to uneducated, learned to unlearned, right? It's the same thing that applies. And there's probably some overlap here between these groups. I don't think Paul was specifically trying to reference four distinct groups, but rather he's saying, I am obligated to people from every walk of life. It doesn't matter who you are among the Gentile world, right? He's not coming just to the rich and powerful, and he's not coming just to the poor. He's coming to anyone. If you are in this group, I'm obligated to you. So it doesn't matter who you are. Among the Gentile world, Paul had an obligation to preach the truth of the gospel. God called him for this work, told him that he would take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul was called into service by God, and therefore his life no longer his own. He was no longer the one calling the shots in his own life. That had been given over to God when he was called to salvation on the road to Damascus. So here he is preparing them with the right perspective on his ministry because that's what he was. And what does he do? Uh, And what does this do for us? It gives us perspective as well. We're no different from Paul in this regard. Was I saved on the road to Damascus, blinded and told to take the gospel before kings? No, that's not my testimony. Uh, I imagine your testimony isn't quite the same as that either. But it wasn't any less life-changing. Everyone who has ever been saved has been transformed, made into a new creature through their saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And we have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his Son, it tells us in Colossians. We now owe a debt to him, and as a result of that, we are indebted to serve him, same as Paul was. We're still indebted. Our ministry might not be exactly the same, but we have been gifted to serve him. We have been entrusted to share the gospel message that saved us. And that is a responsibility that we have in our lives now as bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now by saying this, some might say, well, that makes it sound bad. Well, now I serve only because I have to. Should I see my life in Christ as something that I only do because he's making me do it and I have no choice? That doesn't sound very appealing. But that's not the point. And we've already seen that Paul's attitude in coming to minister to them was not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Look at verse 15. He says, For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He says here that he's eager to do this. Back in verse 11, he said that he longed to see them. Back in verse 9, he said that he was serving God in his spirit. That heartfelt service. Even though he was obligated, there was still a desire for his ministry. There was a heartfelt longing that he had for this work. And that was all because he was serving his Lord. It's important for us to realize that although we love the Lord and we want to serve him, we want to serve in the church and we want to share the gospel, there is also an obligation that we have to do so. Why is that important to realize? Because we realize that when things get tough or when they get less appealing, 
Or maybe when our plans for things don't work out the way that we expect them to, that that doesn't give us license to stop doing what it is that we were called to do. We're in this for the long haul. People might say, well, I'd serve in the church, but I just can't find anything that works on my schedule. Um, I'm, I'm not fond. Maybe they say, you know, I would serve in that ministry, but that guy's there, and I'm not really fond of that guy. Uh, so I'm just going to stop. I'm not going to do that. Or maybe we come in and we say, you know what, I, I do one thing. I serve in this area. In my last church, I served in this one area, and they don't have that ministry here. So I'm just going to sit back, and I'm not going to do anything. Uh, because they don't have my area. We all have gifts to use in the church. And we all have an obligation to serve in the church. And you put those two things together and no one has an excuse to not be serving in the church. Conditions do not have to be ideal to utilize the gifts that we've been given. I mean, look at Paul. He says here he's under obligation. But he's also eager to preach the gospel to them. When he gets to Rome, he's going to be in prison. What does he do in prison? Oh, he just sits there and feels sorry for himself. No. Paul doesn't just sit there and feel sorry for himself. Even in prison, he writes four of the letters that we have in the New Testament. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And even right before he's put to death during his second imprisonment, that's right, he goes back to prison again. He writes to encourage and challenge Timothy in his second letter to Timothy. Paul understands his obligation to the Lord and to those in the church, and he desires to fulfill his obligation to them and preach to them the gospel. This is going to set us up for the rest of the letter. and In the following verses, we really have the segue between his greeting to them, his stated desire to bring the gospel to them, and the rest of the letter where he presents the gospel. And we'll plan on taking a look at that segue uh, in our lesson next week. Why does Paul want to preach the gospel to an already functioning and faithful church? I can't help but ask that question. I think that's a question that we need to ask. He, he sends the gospel to this church that's already functioning. If they are saved and we already know that he's convinced that they are, then why does he want to come and present the gospel? And why does he write the longest letter to any church with a clear-cut gospel presentation if they are already saved and functioning, faithful, their faith known throughout the world? Well, I mentioned earlier, we don't know when these believers were saved. Maybe at Pentecost, maybe 20 years earlier. The apostles had been active since that time. There had been more revelation given since then. There might be more truth that had been revealed that they had not been thoroughly taught yet. There are details here in the letter to the Romans that aren't found in the same, with the same type of clarity in other books. And Romans provides that to us, and Paul's providing that to them. He wanted to come and minister and preach this, and here he writes out a letter detailing it to them as well, providing further revelation than what, he had, than what they had previously had before. Maybe Paul's intention was to write this letter, and then when he came, he could explain it to them, teach it to them. But even more than that, well, and really, that's why we study Romans today as well. First and foremost, it's God's Word. So we take in and study every facet of God's Word as His children, because it's a revelation of God. But even more than that, we have truths 
that pertain to the gospel that we just don't find anywhere else. There's more information here. And so as we move through this letter, that detail will be brought out as we get into it. And we will learn more and more about exactly what God's plan of salvation entails for anyone who would put their faith and trust in his finished work of his son. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord. We just give you praise for, again, this opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this letter uh, that he wrote to this church so many years ago. We thank you, Lord, for its impact and its influence on the church through the years. And we pray, Lord, that it would impact and influence us as well as we study through it. We thank you, Lord, for your plan of salvation. We thank you for Jesus Christ coming to this earth uh, to die on the cross for our sins and, and rising on the third day. We thank you and we praise you for that, Lord. We thank you that we can put our faith and trust in that for our salvation and that we could uh, have that access to you, Lord, through your Son. We thank you for just everything that you've given us in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for this church. We thank you for our time here together. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to just minister to one another this morning, serve one another, help us, Lord, to encourage and edify each other, Lord, with our gifts. And we pray, Lord, that, that you would be glorified and honored by all that we do. And, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.